Just about everybody, except for President Trump himself, thought last month's summit in Helsinki with Russian President Vladimir Putin was an unmitigated disaster. The president dissed his own intelligence agencies, questioning whether they were right when they unanimously concluded the Russians hacked the 2016 election. Trump sucked up to Putin, saying how the Russian president had made an incredible offer that would allow Russian agents to question a former U.S. ambassador for supposed financial crimes in Russia. But for all the negative blowback, the Trump-Putin bromance is far from over. The White House has taken up the idea of another Trump-Putin summit in Washington, after the Robert Mueller witch hunt is over, of course, and Putin has invited Trump to Moscow for more talks. What's really going on in U.S.-Russia relations right now? We'll talk to two guests with some interesting insights. A journalist who has exposed how the Department of Homeland Security is detaining Russian dissidents in the U.S. based on cooked-up phony red notices and a former member of President Obama's National Security Council who worked closely on that administration's aborted Russian reset policy. All that and more on today's episode of Skullduggery. There is absolutely no collusion. I didn't make a phone call to Russia. I have nothing to do with Russia. Everybody knows it. Because people have got to know whether or not their presidents are crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. The British government has learned that Saddam Hussein recently sought significant quantities of uranium from Africa. How many times do I have to answer this question? Can you just say Russia yes no is a ruse. Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. You know, Isikoff, um, this is a, a really good show and I think an important one. And it kind of a reminder uh, that at the end of the day, you know, with all the twists and turns in the Mueller investigation and the screaming headlines and the excitement about, you know, every development, um, that the backdrop of this scandal um, is – uh, an extraordinary development in U.S. foreign policy, which is an American administration that is cozies, cozied up uh, to Russia, that is cozied up to a Putin government um, that, you know, is uh, has backed a brutal dictator in Syria that's gassed its own people, uh, that, um, uh, you know, uh, hacked, works, our election. hacked our election and works to undermine uh, democracies um, around the world, um, and that supports, um, you know, Ill- illiberal um, and authoritarian re- regimes uh, around the world. And it's just important that I think um, w- we we remind our uh, listeners that um, we're not just obsessed with, you know, uh, every detail in the, in the Mueller investigation, but we um, keep in mind uh, that there are kind of real geopolitical consequences to 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 this uh, to these developments. Exactly, we're high-minded policy folks <laughs> at heart, um, if you believe that. But no, look, uh, there are there are a lot of serious uh, aspects to this. Now, as you know, uh, the um, the White House has pushed 
back on this idea that the um, uh, that they've gone soft on Russia, pointing out that they've imposed new sanctions on Russian on Russia and Russian oligarchs, uh, and they have provided lethal aid uh, to uh, the Ukrainian government fighting um, a Russian military uh, in their country. Now, of course, the sanctions were uh, pretty much dictated to by Congress. It's not something that the president was really eager to do. But I go back to um, that really uh, remarkable moment we had a couple of weeks ago in our interview with Tom Bossert, uh, President Trump's former Homeland Security advisor, who was so distressed about what um, the president said during that uh, Helsinki press conference, pointing out that he had briefed the president repeatedly about the evidence showing the Russian role in the election. In fact, what was his quote to us? I thought we had gone over this a sufficient number of times, uh, and yet it doesn't stick with President Trump. Yeah. Uh, And look, this is a administration that is at war with itself on on these issues. There are plenty of people, um, including, um, you know, Defense Secretary Mattis uh, and Pompeo, um, and others who, you know, are in the kind of mainstream of, uh, of you know, Republican uh, foreign policy thinking. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, Donald Trump is in charge, right? And, um, and you know, it's important to, to also remember that, you know, the, the, the words that he speaks, his rhetoric um, has real consequences um, and, and, and policy consequences. So, we're going to hear from uh, Natasha Bertrand, who did this terrific story for for the Atlantic magazine about about the Russians exploiting red notices. Um, y- you know, is it possible? I would argue yes that um, that the president's rhetoric um, and the way he talks about Putin and Russia may send subtle or not so. Uh, uh, subtle I, signals. I was going to say, it doesn't seem very subtle yeah. at all. Well, there's nothing very subtle about uh, Donald Trump. Right. But to, uh, you know, the, the policymakers on the ground, uh, law enforcement officials, uh, that, you know, this is what he wants. So they can be more deferential toward the Russians um, on, on, these, um, on these issues. And so uh, it, I don't think it's the, the case that, oh, well, you know, the president says these things, but then his government acts um, you know, in, in a, you know, in a more normal conventional fashion. I think what he says uh, has consequences. His words become policy. Right, 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 which is a, uh, a distinction that uh, um, Secretary Pompeo tried to elide in his recent testimony uh, before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Exactly. But I don't think a lot exactly. of senators uh, bought it. Uh, uh, you know, it does remind me of uh, uh, when we were in Aspen a few weeks ago, John McLaughlin, who's going to be a future guest and a really interesting one on skullduggery, former deputy director of the CIA, said it's basically like we have two governments. We have a, uh, a bureaucracy trying to do its thing and a president uh, doing his own thing. But the question we're exploring here and we'll be exploring with Natasha is the degree to which, as you point out, that the, uh, the, the presidential rhetoric can actually affect right. the and policy of the, other, the, of the rest of the government. And, and that bureaucracy that McLaughlin referred to, I think he called them the professionals, <laughs> yeah. um, is, a, is, is what – uh, Trump um, and um, and a lot of his supporters view more negatively as the deep state. Um, well, the the deep state, um, you know, is basically 
reflects um, the kind of continuity of American foreign policy um, and intelligence policy for you know decades and decades and decades, um, and um, you know it it you know worked reasonably well. <laughs> well, um, uh, it did, uh, and um, you know there are, there are those out there who uh, should be thanking uh, everybody in the deep state for what they're doing. Um, Yet, obviously, you know, we have elections in this country and uh, the president obviously struck a chord with um, his attacks on the way business was run, which is why it'll be very interesting to talk to our second guest today, um, uh, Samantha Vinograd, who um, was a part of that Obama administration uh, that had its own policy that did not ultimately fare too well. Um, but I think we should um, I think we should get started with uh, Natasha right now. We are now joined by Natasha Bertrand of The Atlantic Magazine, who's written a really timely and informative piece, uh, How Russia Persecutes Its Dissidents Using U.S. Courts. Uh, Natasha, welcome to Skullduggery. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, so, uh, really uh, great reporting here uh, about the uh, Russian use of red notices. Um, so, I want to ask you, tell us um, how you got onto this and why it struck you as as important as it is. Thank you. Yeah. So, I started getting onto the subject when Bill Browder, who of course was a, uh, he's a very high profile um, financier turned human rights activist. And who, and a recent skullduggery guest, we should point out. There you go. <laughs> um, when he, who he has been the target of many Russian red notices, and he was arrested in Madrid a couple months ago. Um, and it started getting me thinking, well, there's a lot of attention being paid to how Russia abuses Interpol kind of internationally. Um, we see a lot of arrests happening on foreign soil, but what about here in the U.S.? What is the coordination like between the Department of Homeland Security, Interpol, ICE, um, and DOJ? And as I started digging around, I came across um, one guy in particular named Ted Broman, who works at the Heritage Foundation, who spends a lot of time researching this issue in particular. And he is the one who told me, well, actually, there's this, you know, kind of bizarre coordination going on between DHS and um, Interpol, where you know, there, there's a level of increasing deference to the red notices being issued out of Russia because they're abusing the system more more so than ever. Well, and what then, exactly yeah. is a red notice? Tell us. So, okay, so yeah, backing up a bit. A red notice is the closest thing we have today to an international arrest warrant. There's no, so a member state of Interpol cannot be compelled to arrest anyone that is the subject of a red notice. Um, but Russia is a top abuser of Interpol in terms of issuing red notices because they're often so politically motivated. So they use them to go after, you know, political dissidents, uh, individuals who are the subjects of, of corporate raiding. Um, so and so people who are fleeing to other countries or in or in the cases that I documented to the U.S. trying to escape this and in many cases seeking asylum. Um, are denied asylum because they have these red notices out um, and DHS is using that kind of as an excuse to 
uh, argue that they should be denied asylum. And so, ultimately- so um, Natasha, first of all, um, th- so this is something that the Russians do um, to harass uh, their political enemies. But we also don't have uh, the United States does not have an extradition treaty with Russia. Correct. So it's a backdoor way uh, of 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 potentially uh, having to set, sending back uh, some of these people back to Russia. Exactly. And that's actually how one immigration attorney who deals with this a lot described it to me. He said, you know, this is a back away. This is a backdoor extradition process. Essentially, we're allowing um, Russia to circumvent um, the fact that we don't have a formal extradition treaty with them because we don't trust their system of justice um, by issuing these red notices and having DHS wanting to kind of bulk out its list of uh, criminals, so-called criminals, um, because they're kind of easy catches. So your lead example is uh, is really revealing a, a guy named Sasha. You don't, you can't use his real name, uh, but he was a victim of this. Tell us um, who Sasha is and what happened to him. Yeah, so this was a really remarkable example. Um, so Sasha is from a tiny Russian republic um, called Kalmykia. Which and, I never heard of. I never by heard of that way. either. I mean, like, where? <laughs> this is a, uh, a skullduggery exclusive, <laughs> a new republic that we'd never heard of. Kamikia. It is very, yeah, it is very, very tiny. Um, I where think is it, it? its total population is like 300,000 people. Um, but essentially, where, where, was, where, where is it, by the way? I, I believe it is in, I have to double check this. It's near Ukraine. Um, okay. It's. So it's in southwestern Russia. All right. Um, but so so he was on his way to a meeting of Russia's pro-democracy Yabloko Party, which is known for its opposition to Vladimir Putin. It's very pro-human rights, anti-corruption. Um, and members of this party are known to be just persecuted all over Russia. Um so he was on his way to one of these part to one of the meetings, and he was pulled into this unmarked black car by two police officers, so-called police officers who were wearing plain clothes. He was interrogated for days about his activity with the party, but he was never actually told what he was being accused of. He was forced to um, sign a uh, to sign a confession, even though he didn't know what he was actually confessing to. And Russian prosecutors later said, seven months later, after he spent months in prison, they said that he was being accused of kidnapping. And he was like, well, I don't know who I kidnapped or who I allegedly beat with a hammer, but here we are. So he was then released on probation and he decided to flee to the United States because he was being, allegedly he was being blackmailed by one of the cops saying, look, I helped get you out of prison. Now you pay me. He didn't have the money. Um, This is all according to his lawyer. So he went to the U.S., sought asylum, but Russia issued a red notice for his arrest. So when he was driving to work in Atlanta last October with his wife, he was pulled over by ICE, and they told him explicitly that he had a red notice out for his arrest and that he was going to be detained. Um, that in and of itself, um, you know, the fact that DHS detained him and and arrested him based on the fact that he had a red notice out is very unusual, um, because 
the Justice Department, for its part, says that red notices are not a sufficient basis for arrest. Um, so now they've kept him in detention, saying that the red notice makes him an international fugitive, even though his lawyer argues that he is, in fact, the victim of a political persecution. So what we're seeing in the court filings in this case was uh, DHS relying very, very heavily on the red notice to argue that he had committed a crime, even though the red notice does not have any independent value whatsoever. Um, it really just requires that Russia fill out the correct form. So it doesn't have the force of law? Not at all. Not at all. No, it's basically just an alert, an alert system. And all of the member countries in Interpol are treated pretty much equally. Uh, Interpol pretty much knows by this point that Russia is a top abuser of the system. And so they've sought to mitigate um, that and they've, they've tried to find ways to, to, to push back on that. And you've, and you've documented, um, uh, Natasha, that, uh, that DHS and ICE, that they've been more uh, deferential toward Russia on the, on, uh, responding to these red notices than, you know, than they were, say, during the Obama administration. Yeah, so this actually started in around 2015. It started ramping up a little bit more, so that was during the Obama administration, um, because they want to bulk out their list of criminals to arrest and remove. It's kind of an easy catch for them, especially since so many of these people have their visas canceled as a result of the red notices being issued against them. So if your visa's canceled, that makes you very vulnerable to being detained for visa overstay, et cetera. Um, but as the abuse of Interpol by Russia and other countries has increased, DHS and DOJ have more and more put themselves in this position of siding with essentially the red notice, um, the, the charges inherent in the red notice. So here's my question. Is this a bureaucratic move by ICE and Homeland Security because they just want to find more people to deport? Or does this reflect in any way, the coziness that the Trump administration has with Russia. Well, they're not, it's not, well, I'll let you answer, Natasha, but it's, they're not mutually exclusive. It could be the confluence of two well, uh, Trump administration policies. I think I asked <laughs> Natasha yeah, I know. to well, answer yeah, this right. question. Okay. Well. okay. <laughs> No, I the don't. expert who's yeah. done the reporting, unlike you, Clyde. Unlike me. I, yeah, right. I, I, yeah, that's right. I'm just a talking head now. I used I used to report, Natasha. You used to. Believe it or I not. Believe it. I believe it. Yeah. Um, no, I think that that's exactly right. I think that they're not mutually ex- exclusive. I think that where you see the effect of the Trump administration policies directly is in this uptick in prosecution of, of visa overstays, which, of course, are the direct results of, of red notices. So it's, it's really you know, it's, it's hard to tell people that I spoke to had conflicting opinions on this. Um, experts in particular said, well, you know, we have seen an uptick in the number of, um, people, people being detained on the basis of red notices, but that again, this started, this whole thing started in 2015. So, so it's, it's hard to say at this point, I think that we just have to wait and see how the pattern plays out. What, what does Homeland Security say? Um, so I reached out for comment and, and they gave me a pretty lengthy statement. Um, they say that, you know, it's their responsibility to, to vet any criminal violators that have come to the U S and that they make independent determinations and educated guesses basically on whether the person is actually a criminal. Um, he said that they do, you know, try to make sure that the individual in question is actually a true criminal and not just a political target. But ultimately, that's not what the court filings are showing. What the court filings are showing 
is that DHS is the lawyers arguing on behalf of DHS are saying that, you know, these arrest warrants that are issued by Russia are supported by the red notice, which is completely backwards because the red notice, of course, does not actually have any value. And it's just really remarkable that immigration judges as well are going along with those arguments. I mean, especially in the case of Sasha, um, the immigration judge actually or actually ordered him removed to Russia, um, which is, you know, essentially sending him back to his doom, even, you know, even though, as Browder told me, most civilized countries, um, you know, try to prevent uh, against that kind of thing. Yeah, aren't there international treaties that would prevent us from sending uh, people back to countries where there is a uh, reasonable chance that they're going to be, uh, you know, imprisoned and, and potentially tortured? Yeah, I mean, you would think so. And I think that's exactly the appeal that his lawyer is making. But his lawyer has reached a dead end with the judge. Um, the judge uh, conceded that Sasha was testifying credibly about the threat that he felt in his life. And, you know, the, he was testifying credibly when he said that he thought he was going to be tortured if he went back to Russia. And the judge said, well, that may be the case, but it's not my place to adjudicate that. That is for a foreign tribunal to decide. And you have these, you know, charges out for you. And it's, you know, those are valid in Russia, et cetera. So these things were not even considered that the validity of the red notice and the fact that they're so often politically motivated was not even considered by the judge. Um, if you read these court filings. So, what so they- if I, if I read your uh, article correctly, uh, in, in some instances, uh, the immigration authorities actually aren't relying on red notices, but, but, but on, um, visa overstays, which is also unusual to detain people, uh, under those circumstances, right? Yeah. So that, that in many cases, so for example, in the um, latter two cases that I cite, um, in the case, in, for the individuals that were subjected to corporate rating, they were initially detained on the basis of overstaying their visa. And then they were kept in detention and denied bond hearings um, because of the red notice. So that's kind of where they're getting them is they say, well, you overstayed your visa. That gives us grounds to actually detain you. But we can also deny you a bond hearing because you're a flight risk because of this red notice. So back to Sasha for a moment. Where is he now? So he is still in detention in Atlanta. And he has been for almost a year now. So in detention, that's a uh, ICE detention facility? Yeah. It's, I mean, I asked what it was like, and they told me it was just an ICE detention facility, and it was akin to a jail, basically. Right. So look, the significance of this uh, coming right now is, you know, we had that uh, uh, Helsinki summit where uh, Putin offers Trump this, uh, what Trump called this incredible offer of um, uh, he'll let, um, uh, in which Putin says that uh, he'll let uh, U.S. authorities, uh, Mueller's people, question the GRU guys who were indicted for the hacking of the DNC so long as um, uh, the Russians get to interrogate people like Bill Browder and Michael McFaul, the former U.S. ambassador, for what they believe were crimes committed uh, uh, in Russia um, so that the Russians could then file— 
well, they've already filed criminal charges against Browder, but they presumably want to extend that to others like McFall. And then they could issue red notices to have them detained in the United States. Am I correct? Right, exactly. And this this was the fear that McFall was expressing over the last two weeks. He said, look, I don't want to be you know, the president needs to tell Vladimir Putin that this is completely unacceptable because I don't want to be traveling in Europe over the next few months and find myself sitting in a detention center in some European country because there's been a red notice issued for my arrest. And, you know, Interpol, like I said, Interpol understands that Russia issues politically motivated red notices. And so they have actually stopped honoring the ones that Russia has issued against Bill Browder, for example. But there's a way they've managed to get around that, which is by issuing what's what they call diffusion notices, um, which what, are essentially what are they? they're essentially less formal, but more immediate than red notices. So they have to go through fewer hoops to get them issued. But they're a, they're basically a, uh, a one kind of a uh, how do I describe it? Like a, a, a fast track to being detained. So wh- what's been the, what's been the reaction to your piece so far? People are pretty shocked. Um, I don't think that a lot of people understood or knew that this was happening here. Um, just because we don't have an extradition treaty with Russia and because we generally don't respect their judicial system because we know that it, you know, is very corrupt there, of course, were the cases, the most famous cases are Browder, um, Alexei Navalny, the opposition leader, and Mikhail Khodorkovsky, who are, have been, you know, arguably the most famous um, cases in Russia. And so, you know, these are all things that continue to taint Russia's judicial system. And and by the way, there are others. I'm, I'm thinking uh, in particular of Grigory Rachenkov, uh, who was the whistleblower uh, on the Russian doping scandal, the former chief uh, Russian Olympic do- uh, anti-doping official who actually was doping Russian athletes. His whistleblowing led to multiple investigations uh, and the rescinding of uh, those um, uh, Olympic medals for a whole bunch of um, uh, Olympic uh, Russian Olympic athletes. He's in the United States. He is an enemy of Vladimir Putin. Uh, they have filed criminal charges, drug trafficking charges against him in Russia. The Russians want their hands on him, and I would think he would be a prime target for a red notice such as this one. That's a great point. Yeah, Natasha. Sure. If if the Trump administration wanted uh, to kind of reform this process and um, uh, make it harder for the Russians to kind of exploit our uh, uh, justice system by uh, using these red notices. Like what what would they do? Like what what should the uh, uh, reform uh, be? Yeah, it's a good question. I think that the problem, first and foremost, is keeping these people in detention for so long um, and denying them bond hearings because they believe that they're a flight risk. I think that that is a profound misunderstanding of how red notices actually work. Um, and by not making that argument in front of a judge, you could save, you know, a lot of people, a lot of pain while they just sit in a detention center and wait for their asylum to be approved or denied. Um, but ultimately I think that it's going to have to come from the top. I mean, DHS is making these arguments in court filings that, you know, these people are fugitives simply because Russia has issued charges against them. And that 
obviously, you know, does not take into consideration how corrupt their system is. So if I, I honestly don't know whether there's a, a something that Trump unilaterally could do, but there is something kind of sick in the system right now where the immigration judges and the DHS are just so kind of eager to round up as many, you know, kind of easy catches that they can, that they're swooping up people who are going to be very vulnerable to persecution in their countries if they end up having to go back. Um, now, Natasha, uh, you got onto this, uh, I'm sure, because of your uh, fearless reporting on the um, whole Russia investigation uh, by Robert Mueller. And um, I want to I want I want to ask you about uh, one of your stories that I particularly enjoyed when you got into a, um, a tiff with uh, Ty Cobb, who was then the uh, White House counsel uh, for all matters uh, relating to the Mueller investigation. Um, in which um, he um, asked you a very unusual question. So I want you to tell skullduggery listeners about that exchange. <laughs> right. So I, I had asked Ty Cobb, this was, I think, back in September, um, a pretty, you know, innocuous question. I thought, um, you know, I, I was I had written a story outlining how the advice that White House counsel Don McGahn had given to Trump about a letter that Trump intended to send to then uh, FBI director Jim Comey firing him could prove actually pivotal in the in the obstruction case. And so I asked um, Cobb for comment about that. And he asked me, he said, are you on drugs? I mean, he sent me this email at like midnight on a Saturday. Um, he asked you, know, you in an email, are you on drugs? Yes. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and what was, uh, and what was your answer? <laughs> <laughs> I said, no, I think that that was a pretty fair question. And, you know, after that, I kind of expected him to, issue some kind of statement or I mean the whole the story kind of blew up and he it was ironic because he was kind of expected to be the adult in the room he was hired to play cleanup for Mark Mark Kasowitz the former Trump lawyer all of his messes and, and email communications so it was very ironic and uh, I think that that kind of put me on the White House's uh, bad side from then. From then. Um, the enemies list, the, the uh, very substantial enemies list of the uh, Trump White House. But actually, that does uh, uh, bring up a pretty important point. That was uh, September of 2017. And the issue there was obstruction and yeah. whether the, the president had uh, engaged in obstruction of justice when he fired uh, Jim Comey um, after asking for his loyalty and asking him to let Mike Flynn go. So that was nearly a year ago. Yeah. And here we are. Um, and we still don't know what Robert Mueller is doing with all this, or do we? It's pretty amazing. No, we don't. We saw a scatter of reports um, earlier this summer saying that maybe by the end of the summer there would be an obstruction report that Mueller was going to present um, that he was that he was writing it anyway. Um, but I think all we know at this point is that he's pursuing the investigation on two separate tracks. Of course, the question is if you were to release an obstruction report you know, what would he have been obstructing? So it's really hard to have the report come out without any 
understanding of whether there was a uh, broader conspiracy between the campaign and Russia. And we still we still don't know. But but more and more facts are coming out about that as well with the Trump Tower news last week. So. Right. Right. Well, look, the Trump Tower news, uh, meaning uh, the uh, Michael Cohen's um, claiming that he has evidence uh, that uh, uh, Trump um, knew about the Trump Tower meeting uh, before it occurred. Exactly. Well, right. that that would certainly give a uh, a, a real uh, motive for obstruction on the president's part, and would bolster an obstruction case. Uh, but what's your gut on this? Do you think Cohen really has the goods? Oh, absolutely. I think that this is not. I mean, I think that it makes total sense, first of all, that they would have had a pre-Trump meeting meeting to go over everything. Um, that would explain that big speech that Trump gave and like previewing that dirt that he had on Hillary Clinton. But he was about to give a speech about Hillary Clinton, which it was announced, uh, which he said the day that the Trump Tower meeting was supposed to what was taking place. Exactly. And, you know, so that would that would certainly put that into context. Um, and it would also you know, it, it wouldn't be surprising at all if Michael Cohen was just in Trump's office one day or on a conference call or something. And, you know, Donald Trump Jr. walked in and said, hey, we're going to we're going to do this. What do you think? Do, do, we, um, do we think that anyone else was in that meeting other than uh, Michael Cohen and, and, you know, and Donald Trump Jr.? Well, Cohen apparently has told well, the sources who spoke to CNN said that Michael Cohen is prepared to testify that he was not the only one in the room with Donald Trump Jr. and and uh, Donald Trump. And in fact, you know, we saw Rudy Giuliani say yesterday as he was trying to preempt this entire story um, that Rick Gates was in the room. And Rick Gates, of course, is cooperating with Mueller. So that would be significant. Rick- well, look, if, if Gates can corroborate this story from Michael Cohen, then, uh, yeah, that would that would be a major development that would um, uh, give the lie to what a lot of the testimony has been from Donald Trump Jr. And Especially since, let's remind listeners that then yeah. Trump, this we know, uh, yeah. dictated uh, the um, the response to the New York Times, which broke the story, right. that this was not about, this was about other things, this was about, you know, adoptions or whatever. But, but look, I, uh, it is at this point, um, you know, a leaked story about something that Michael Cohen might say. Uh, we don't know exactly what he has to say or what exactly he heard. So I think on that score, we should we should still maintain a, a little bit of caution. And, and um, he's got some credibility issues. <laughs> yes, he does. He'll he'll have to cop. Most likely he'll have to cop to a felony himself for lying to Congress because he's testified in private um, uh, before the House and Senate. And which does bring me to which is my the, the point I've been trying to hammer time and time again, uh, and I think it's the most important point, why has all this testimony been behind closed doors? Every political scandal from Watergate the to Iran-Contra to Iran-Contra, yeah, congressional yeah. testimony, uh, Congress has hearings in public putting key fact witnesses under oath before the TV cameras because an important part of a congressional hearing is not to build a case that somebody committed a crime, but to educate the public about what happened. And none of that has taken place here. Right. And depending on who you ask, I mean, there is a 
a belief that if these transcripts were released of interviews with people like Jared Kushner, Paul Manafort, Michael Cohen, you would see that the Republicans were essentially acting as their defense lawyers, that that is the reason really why they did not want to hold these hearings in public. I mean, there there has been the argument that they've made, which is that they don't want those testimonies to influence other witnesses and influence what they might say. But there is also a, a, a real sense that if these transcripts were made public, the public would see that they were playing defense for these Trump associates. That, that, and, that may be the case. But frankly, I have not seen Mark Warner uh, banging the table for public hearings. I actually haven't even seen Adam Schiff banging the table for public hearings. And all the reasons given, you don't want one witness to taint the testimony of another. All that was true during Iran-Contra. All that was true during Whitewater. All that was true during Watergate. And yet Congress felt an obligation to the public to uh, educate the country uh, and and about what had happened. And uh, in my view, it's a, a real dereliction of I duty. To- I totally Congress's agree. Part. But my guess is it also has something to do. I mean, one reason why a Mark Warner would not be fighting hard for this is that he sees how thoroughly polarized the Congress is, how political all of this has become, and that um, it inevitably turns into a totally partisan food fight. Um, that uh, undercuts the the dignity of his investigation and ultimately is not um, is not productive or helpful. I, d- I don't think that's a valid reason, but I'll bet you that's part of the thinking as well. Hey, Natasha, are we going to see a report from the Senate Intelligence Committee soon? I haven't I haven't asked, um, but that's a really good question. I feel like you know they came out with that one recently, saying that they agree with the intelligence community's assessment on Vladimir Putin's motives and Russia's election interference. And in terms of, I, I feel like the the Senate Intel report will be much more of a it'll be a much more bipartisan product, of course, in the House Intel Committee. But um, they're still they're still chipping away, as far as I can tell. They're still. Um, looking at documents, interviewing people. So we'll just have to wait and see. Well, um, uh, we will. And when we finally get that report or we get some uh, further developments on the red notice front, um, we will have you back on Skullduggery. Thanks a lot for coming on. Great. Thank you both. Thank you, Natasha. We'll be back with more Skullduggery. We are joined now by Samantha Vinograd, a former member of the Obama National Security Council staff, now a senior advisor to the uh, Biden Institute. Uh, Samantha, welcome to Skullduggery. Thanks for having me. So the um, the that Helsinki summit that the president held with uh, with President Putin clearly rattled the national security establishment, both current and former officials. And people are still scratching their heads trying to figure out and explain the president's conduct. Um, what's your explanation? My explanation is that he probably didn't listen to his team, and that's not anything that's new under this White House from a as a factual statement. But what's getting missed a lot is why diverging from past practices uh, in terms of consulting with your director of national intelligence or your national security advisor, actual Russia experts, has an actual operational impact. And the president's decision to do this one-on-one, for example, opened himself up as a massive target for the Russians to manipulate 
and for conspiracy theories just to continue to evolve and to grow. And the Russians are manipulating all of that. And we're not talking about the actual substance of the meeting. First of all, we don't know what happened in that one-on-one. There wasn't a note-taker, which is also diverging from past uh, standard operating procedures. But we don't know what happened. And we're talking about, again, these conspiracy theories and the president undercutting his team and not the substance of whether arms control was discussed or Syria or Ukraine or anything like that. Now, you were on the uh, Obama National Security Council staff, um, and you participated in some talks with the Russians, correct? I did. Yeah. I did. Uh, were, there, um, were there note-takers and others in the room when you were meeting with uh, – President Putin? <laughs> uh, you can't see this, but I'm grinning a little bit because you almost want to overcorrect when you're dealing with the Russians on these wow. issues. And the, by that, I mean you want to have note takers, you want to check those notes, and you want to make damn sure that they're submitted for the record in the proper way, classified way, so that there's a record of what actually happened in that meeting. Because first off, you know the Russians are going to try to manipulate the message. And this is before the days of bots and trolls. They're going to try to paint a different story of what was discussed, what wasn't discussed. So you want to have a factual record of what happened. Today, you have bot and troll armies going full force. So imagine President Putin, we know, controls the media in Russia state-controlled media for the most part. And his bot and troll armies mean that he controls a lot of our media, too. So the absence of that record is really galling. And, you know, for one-on-one meetings, Obama didn't have one-on-ones with Putin. Normally, he'd have a two-plus-two, someone else in the room, so that there was one more account of what happened. We would submit a memorandum for the record as soon as possible after that meeting ended. So the content was as fresh in our minds. We could get it down on paper and we could file it. Sam, I, sorry. I'd I, I just like you to expand a little bit on, on this issue. I, I had an old editor who used to say process is destiny. Hmm. Um, but it really is um, in the process, how, how decisions get made, how you know, paper flows, uh, how these meetings take place. It really is uh, consequential. Explain a little bit about why it's so important. Well, I think we saw that play out in Helsinki. I mean, the first part of the process is to decide, and I'll tell you what that means, when to offer a foreign leader meeting. So you can think about the Russia meeting. You can think about the Kim Jong-un meeting. That process involves using your intelligence community, like DNI Coates, for example, to provide analysis of how a foreign leader would view the invitation, for example. So let's take uh, the Russians as an example. You would have a process where you would have the intelligence community say, okay, this is the state of play with Russia. They attacked us. They're still attacking us. This is how Vladimir Putin views you. And if you offer him a meeting, this is how we assess he would receive it. That's the input normally to a policy decision about whether even to have a meeting at all. And so yesterday or a few weeks ago with um, DNI Coates at the Aspen Security Forum, we heard that he wasn't consulted, for example, about whether Trump should have this one-on-one with Putin or extend another invitation to Putin to come to um, Washington in the fall. That's really surprising to me because the president would have missed out on this that part of the process. And then you set the meeting and on the on the substantive part, your NSC kicks into full gear designing your agenda, like what topics you want to talk about. And then I have to tell you, I can't remember how many windowless hours I spent in the Situation Room going through the policy discussions about what we wanted on missile defense or Syria. And that's an exhaustive process because you want to make sure you hear from every entity in the U.S. government that has a view. You want full information so that you can come out with all the options on an issue. 
and then make a recommendation to the president. The president can agree or disagree, but it's after that process. You were working for the National Security Council uh, during the, uh, President Obama's first term when the policy goal was a reset to improve relations with Russia. Um, clearly, that did not work out and, uh, and it, the policy began to unravel as a result of events. But I'd like to get your take on what went wrong with the reset and why it started to go south. And this is a really important question, particularly because President Trump is painting a really false narrative. He said something like, I'm the first one to engage with Russia. I'm the first one to want a better relationship with Russia. That's actually factually not true. You look shocking. Surprise, surprise. Surprise, surprise. You look at 2009 when President Obama came into office, he wanted exactly that. The reset was a policy that refers to the notion that President Obama was newly in office, President Medvedev, who was really a figurehead, was newly in office in Russia, and we would reset relations by having dialogue and being nice to the Russians, um, really showing them what they would get if they were a responsible player on, on the world stage. So what went wrong, and this is a lesson that should be applicable today, is that charm, offensive don't, charm offensives don't work with the Russians. We now have almost 20 years of history with Vladimir Putin that makes that clear. We tried being nice. I mean, Russia joined the WTO. They were at every major international meeting. Medvedev and Obama seemingly had a, quote unquote, friendly relationship. I will say that Obama was not afraid to raise bilateral irritants. But the idea was to kind of embrace Russia, talk more, not less. And it didn't work. And by the way, George uh, W. Bush did the same thing at the outset of his And he, he uh, looked into Putin's eyes and saw his soul. Yeah, so this is, not, this is not a new tactic. What's new is, and maybe Obama was guilty of this too because of what happened with Bush, but not looking back at history and saying, okay, we tried this. It didn't work. What do we try now? We know that being nice to Vladimir Putin does nothing but make him feel like he's in control. So you said something interesting before we mentioned that Medvedev was really just a figurehead uh, and that Putin, who was then the prime minister, having served as president for eight years or so, had stepped down as to the number two slot of prime minister, was really pulling the strings. Um, you know, there is a, a, a critique that uh, that was – should have been clear from mm-hmm. the beginning and that the Obama folks were overly optimistic about what they thought they could achieve by working with Medvedev when there was Putin lurking in the background the whole time. I think that's true. I think that we, and by we, I mean the administration, were too slow to realize that Putin wasn't going away, that he was just biding his time, and that Medvedev was there not taking direct instruction from Putin necessarily, perhaps he was, but really kind of doing things to lay the groundwork for Putin to come back. I think there was a misunderstanding about that, and there was a misunderstanding about what Russia wanted. I mean, you go back to 2009, I can't say that everything was great with the Russians, it was better than it was now, but how quickly did we see the invasion of Ukraine? Um, how quickly did we see Russia start to support I'm, I'm Assad? Sorry, 2014, 2014. How quickly did we start yeah. to see Russia unabashedly support Assad in Syria? I mean, there, there's no pretense yeah. of even talking about it. Yeah. Ru- Russia felt completely empowered. And by the way, to start making up these ridiculous conspiracy theories about Secretary Clinton inciting protests and Mike McFaul, my former colleague, and his role in that when he was ambassador. I mean, the wheels came off so quickly that I do think there was a bit of surprise. And maybe maybe it was just a moment of optimism that's typical of any newly installed administration. And so the question for Trump is, 
Is that what we're seeing now? Is it going to correct? Or is he just wearing such rose-colored glasses? And we can descri- well, discuss why. Well, yeah, let's talk about that. We, we, uh, we, the, all of us were at the Aspen Security Forum um, a few weeks ago. And uh, the question that everyone asked, kind of ad nauseum at a certain point, but uh, was – why this affinity for this Russian dictator? What what is it uh, about Trump's love affair with Putin? Do you have a theory? I think it'd be one of two things, and I'm not conspiracy minded, but at a certain point, you just have to say, what does Putin have on him that he is so obsequious with uh, with Putin? But then on the other side, you know, if I look at this, if you, from an intelligence perspective, if you're the Russians and you're figuring out how to get Trump to behave, it is so obvious what you do. I mean. Foreign intelligence agencies used to have to work really hard to figure out how to play uh, a U.S. president. Now you just have to look at the president's Twitter feed, and it's pretty simple how to manipulate him. You flatter him egregiously. Okay, that's done. You talk about domestic divisions in the United States being stacked against everything. That's done. And you throw words around like historic, and that's what Kim Jong-un did uh, to get him to the Singapore summit. So. I think that the president's buttons are easily pushed because of this really strong inferiority complex. But um, uh, you went to Moscow, I believe, in 2012 with Tom Donnellan. and 2013. There was a meeting that Donnellan had with Putin that, um, from all accounts, was really uh, unpleasant. And Putin went off on some of his conspiracy theories about how the United States was engaged in a plot to get him. Um, tell us what <laughs> I just can't what happened. Yeah, I mean, the, the irony here. I, here's something that's real and nuance is really missing from the dialogue, not our dialogue today, but just in general. You can have tough meetings with the foreign counterpart and life goes on, right? And I'll come back to the Donald question, but yeah. Obama canceled a 2013 summit with Vladimir Putin over Edward Snowden. Guess what? They met a few months later. They continue talking on the right. phone. So e- even enemies or even friends can have these really intense meetings where you look at each other and kind of say, seriously, are, are you doing this? And the relationship goes on. I think right now there's this weird narrative coming out of the Trump White House. And this was after the Singapore summit, too. And he said, well, I didn't really push human rights because nuclear issues were front and center. You can do both. You can walk and chew gum. And it's it's a false representation to pretend otherwise. But, yeah, Tom Donilon met with Vladimir Putin. And much like Obama was not afraid to raise the bilateral irritants in the relationship. We were there in 2012 and we were there in 2013. Um, the first of which was on the eve of Putin's inauguration when he was coming back in full force. We were on the plane home when the Boston Marathon bombing happened. And we had that – remember that whole issue with getting access to the right. perpetrator's family in Russia? That to me was a big turning point in the relationship. Hmm. But Tom Donilon, like Obama, was of the mindset that you have to you have to put everything out on the table. Otherwise, the Russians and Putin feel would feel like they're in control and that you're worried about confronting him. And that's not an equal relationship. Putin feels entirely comfortable spinning these stories about Bill Browder and Mike McFall because they pushed for the Magnitsky Act, this human rights uh, legislation. And we just sit there now and don't push back. What that The only thing that does is make Putin feel but more But the powerful. idea – give us a little flavor if you can of Putin's thinking and this idea that – that he seems to have that the U.S. is out to get him or overthrow him or topple his government. Yeah, and it's not it's not just Putin's mindset. Did he mindset. express that ex- explicitly? Uh, that I can't comment on, but what I can say is that Vladimir Putin has publicly and privately raised these conspiracy theories with a host of cabinet officials, and 
has also done so publicly. I mean, look at his public record on this stuff. And it's not just against the U.S. He uses, and perhaps he's as deeply paranoid as our own president, any excuse that he can to tamp down domestic dissent. I mean, he won't let anyone protest. He's controlled the media fully. He doesn't want any dissenting voices because he's worried about his hold on power. And I think that you have to remember, I mean, this guy still wears Cold War glasses. So everything the United States does in his mind, it's so zero sum. And it even comes out of a deeper strain of Russian think, uh, thinking that, you know, it goes back to the, you know, the Russians always went back between being westernizer and hmm. westernizers and, and Slavophiles. And, and um, you know, it's uh, – uh, it, some, some people have talked about Trump and, and, uh, and, and Putin have kind of s- s- having similar qualities. In they that do, kind of, yeah. Um, you know, the kind oh, of yeah. paranoia. Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, one big factor in, in, in the Trump affinity for Putin is Putin runs Russia the way he would like to run America, That's right. whether the way he's trying to run America. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, he's made comments, unfortunately, about admiring strong men in the past. Um, that's, you know, that's whether it's Erdogan or Kim Jong-un or Putin, and then he says he's joking. But I think they share um, a deep sense of paranoia I don't think that Putin shares the inferiority complex that the president does. I think Putin plays off of it. They both also share the same desire to manipulate um, the media and to really view the media as a propaganda outlet. Mm -hmm. And so it is deeply troublesome to me that we issued – there's a State Department statement from right before the Helsinki summit where they talk about press freedom in Russia. You read that, then President Putin and President Trump are on stage in Helsinki. And our president starts haranguing the fake news and, you know, CNN, the media yeah. as being the uh, – Your network, enemy, right? My network, an analyst. But the, yeah. enemy, the enemy of the state. And so there's this notion of the media being there as a tool, um, a propaganda tool that I think they both share. Well, um, uh, very fascinating insights. Um, but I've got to ask you, you are a senior advisor to the Biden Institute. So you meet um, – regularly with the former vice president, uh, Joe Biden? We are working hard on domestic policy issues at the Biden Institute. Is he going to run for president? I will leave it as I hope so. (laughs) What do you think? What's in your gut? I think that the vice president loves serving his country. I think that the vice president uh, has expressed the discontent he feels for our country right now. So I think that he's... He's thinking about it. Do you think he feels more motivated uh, at this point to run for office because of uh, the Trump presidency? I think everyone does. And it's not just him. I think how could you not? Mm-hmm. Um, as a former government official, I feel so frustrated right now that I can comment on what's going on and can't think of any way to impact it. And so if you're a former vice president, former senator, it's obvious to you what that path would be. For those of us that were civil servants in government, you know – we just can't – we're counting down till midterms. We're doing everything we can to get yeah. those elections in place if you know right. the president admits that Russia is still attacking us um, before the midterms. But it's a very frustrating existence right mm. now. So I do think it would motivate him as well as all the rest of us. Well, should there be a, uh, a Biden administration in the future, we will expect to see <laughs> you among its uh, senior ranks. But Sam- Samantha Vanegard, thanks for uh, thanks joining for us me. on Skullduggery. Thanks to Samantha Vinograd and Natasha Bertrand for joining us on this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. And Skullduggery is also on Sirius XM. 
Subscribers can catch the latest episode on POTUS Channel 124 every Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, with replays at 10 p.m. on Saturday and Sundays at 2 a.m. and 1 p.m. Eastern Time. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you.